Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Okay, on the show today, I welcome Dr. Robert Lustig. Dr. Lustig is a celebrated pediatric neuroendocrinologist and author of the New York Times bestsellers, Fat Chance and The Hacking of the American Mind. Dr. Lustig has been one of the most outspoken and prominent voices in the medical community around the dangers of sugar and processed food over the past 15 years. His most recent book, Metabolical, outlines the eight pathologies that underlie all chronic disease, and it documents how processed food has impacted them to ruin our health, our economy, and our environment over the past 50 years. Now, this book provides an urgent manifesto and strategy to cure both us and the planet. In our conversation, Dr. Lustig and I discuss some of the biggest nutritional myths propagated by big food. We talk about how the medical establishment treats symptoms with drugs instead of the underlying disease. We dissect the collusion between big food, big pharma, and big government. And he outlines key diagnostic testing and biomarkers that empower the individual to take control over their own health care. Dr. Lustig unpacks his simple mantra for health, protect the liver and feed the gut. If you're interested in functional and integrative medicine-based programs with teachers like Dr. Mark Hyman and Dr. Roger Schwelt on topics such as gut health, sleep, immunity, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition, then you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on health, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. I've been following Dr. Lustig's work for over a decade, and it was a treat to get this opportunity to be in conversation with him. So without further delay, I present to you, Dr. Robert Lustig. Hey, Dr. Robert Lustig, great to be with you. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. My pleasure. Yeah. So just first off, I want to express my general gratitude for your uh, illuminating and persistent work in educating <laughs> people on food and the persistent food industry. Persistent is the right word. <laughs> yeah. Well, I use that word because in many ways you were first to the party uh, in exposing the insidious role of sugar in our society. And I remember 
Oh God, watching your video, The Bitter Truth, some maybe <laughs> 10 or 11 years ago before it had accumulated 20 million views on YouTube. Something like that. Um, yeah. So I have or, to tell you, I have to tell you, I'm not, I wasn't the first to the party. I was the second to the party. You know, right. John Yudkin was the first to the party. And the problem is he got thrown under the bus. And so, you know, because of the way he was treated uh, by not just the industry, but by all of uh, the medical and scientific communities, nobody touched this. This was the third rail of nutrition for the next 40 years. And mm. I think I was just stupid enough to wander into it. <laughs> well, stupid slash brave. Um, <laughs> and of course, there's good reason that is the third rail given the uh, collusion uh, between industries here that we will dissect um, briefly uh, in a moment. But I can say I, I certainly account for multiple dozen of the views on that video. Um, so thank you. <laughs> And um, I just got through your recent book, Metabolical, and it is just, uh, man, a piece of work. I can understand that that could have been an arduous and onerous task to to write it, given the breadth of the information in it. Well, it I really just, yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, my wife would tell you tell me that I'm the piece of work, not the not the <laughs> book, but uh, especially after having written it. It, it. What I can say is, I learned early on that a calorie was not a calorie. Okay, I knew that in college. I, I studied nutritional biochemistry at MIT. I knew that in college, but you know, everyone seemed to ignore that and you know, not uh, you know, take that uh, 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 you know, into account. Uh, so I wrote Fat Chance with the notion of trying to explode that notion of a calorie is a calorie, which I hope I did. But yeah. what I learned after writing Fat Chance was that there was an entire um, uh, treasure trove of documents and uh, correspondence from the food industry to scientists that basically subverted uh, nutrition uh, information and policy over the last 40 years. This is the same you know, group of people who threw Yudkin under the bus. And so I had to rewrite uh, fat chance and you know basically as an expose of what happened recognizing you know that this was a put-up job that this was not just by accident yeah well i will say that metabolical does an absolutely fantastic and thorough job both on the macroscopic and microscopic level um at dissecting this uh spiraling spiraling global health crisis and um, in our time together today i i hope that we can go on that journey from forty thousand feet all the way down into the <laughs> um into the cell uh, so into, we can understand right, the myriad into the, dimensions into the ionic here. bonds and the, cov and the covalent bonds that uh, that actually drive chronic disease you know Absolutely. Well, that's a great place to start. Maybe you could um, begin by outlining the primary chronic or non-communicable diseases and give us just a sense of scale in terms of the health, uh, economic, and planetary costs associated with these diseases. Well, how much time do we have? Um, yeah, it's, I know. <laughs> it's a, that's, a, that's a big nut to crack. What I, can, what I can say is that every single country's healthcare budget is going to hell in a handbasket because of chronic metabolic disease. Okay, no country is unscathed. Uh, and the worst country, of course, is us uh, here in the United States because we spend the most and get the least in terms of health span, in terms of years of quality life. And it's because of chronic metabolic disease. Now, people think that the chronic metabolic diseases that are chewing through their wallets and chewing through their bodies are the following. And I'll just list those diseases for you. Type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease. Okay. They together, those 
eight diseases together now constitutes 75% of the US healthcare budget, which is insane. Considering mm. that once upon a time, when I entered medical school, type two diabetes was a disease of people over age 65. 2.5% of people over age 65 had type two diabetes. And I know this because I had to write a term paper on it. Well, today it is 10% of people over age 20. So we went from 2.5% of people over age 65 to 10% of people over age 20. And this is what is chewing through all the, the, the money. And of course, causing enormous problems in terms of productivity and loss of, uh, of revenue and resources throughout the United States and other countries. So in terms of what's wrong, people think, well, diabetes is a disease of aging. Not true if 20, 20 year olds are getting it. They think diabetes is a disease of overeating, except for the fact that there are a lot of people who are normal weight who get type two diabetes. Okay. And you know, the fact of the matter is they, that it used to be that diabetes was a disease of alcohol, but kids get type two diabetes and they don't drink alcohol. So turns out that type two diabetes is really because of the change in our food system, which turned into a change in our food supply, which turned into a change in our metabolism, which is now driving this chronic metabolic train wreck. And today, 88% of America is metabolically unhealthy, 88%. Now, only 65% are overweight or obese. But 88% are metabolically unhealthy. That means that there are plenty of normal weight people who are metabolically unhealthy as well. And this is the point of the books that I've written is that it's not about obesity. Obesity is a marker for the problem, not the cause of the problem. There are plenty of normal weight people who are sick too. And the reason they're sick is the same reason that the obese are sick because they're exposed to the same processed food environment. Now, people think it's those diseases. It turns out those diseases are just the manifestations of the pathologies. In metabolical, I go through the eight subcellular pathologies that are actually belying all of those chronic diseases. All of them have these eight, and these are reversible. These are fixable with diet. And here they are. These, and these are diseases your doctor doesn't talk to you about because they don't know what they are. And hmm. these are the diseases that doctors won't even, you know, like mention because there's no ICD-11 code to bill for them. And there's no medicine for them. So like, why would they bring them up anyway? But these are the eight subcellular pathologies that are actually driving the, the, the problem. Here they are. I'm just going to name them real quick. One, glycation. Two, oxidative stress, three, mitochondrial dysfunction, four, insulin resistance, five, membrane instability, six, inflammation, seven, methylation, eight, autophagy. Now, how many of those have you heard of? Well, I've heard of them all, but not, I don't think uh, but, but on a public audience, basis. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think more and more people are beginning to learn about them. Um, uh, because of, you know, obviously your work and the work of other functional medicine doctors and, um, and other people into that are essentially curious about going upstream and right. finding out what do all of these non-communicable diseases actually share? What are they built on top of? Exactly. I think this is where it gets really interesting because all of these diseases, as you have eloquently articulated here and in the book, um, are based upon these primary processes of cell dysfunction. That's right. That all seem to be associated to some degree with metabolism, 
or metabolic dysfunction. So right. maybe you could get a little geeky here quickly with us <laughs> about okay. the nature of how the body processes food for energy um, right. with a specific focus on the delineation potentially between glucose and fructose. Right. So it's all about the mitochondria. Okay. If there's one word that your listeners need to walk away with and understand, it's mitochondria. Now, if you took 10th grade biology, you learned about the mitochondria. Okay. It is an essential component of uh, high school biology education. Problem is you haven't heard of it since and you need to. It's the most important part of the cell. You hear about the nucleus all the time because that's where the DNA is and everybody's into genetics. Well, this is actually a bigger problem than genetics. Mitochondria are the little energy burning factories inside each of our cells. Glucose is the primary energy source, but there are other energy sources as well, such as fat, ketones, amino acids, alcohol, um, and of course, fructose, which we will get to in a minute, right? But glucose is the primary energy source. And there are two steps to turning glucose into energy to power the cell. The first step is called glycolysis. That's what yeasts do, fermentation. That's the difference between wine and grape juice. And the second is what we call aerobic respiration, mitochondrial function. And that's where the majority of the ATPs, the adenosine triphosphates, the chemical energy that food gets turned into that powers the cell gets done. When your mitochondria work, you make lots of ATP and that's what your cells want to do, especially brain cells, because they use a lot of ATP because neurotransmission is ATP, energy intensive, ATP intensive. And there's no place to store energy in the brain because, I mean, you need, <laughs> you need your neurons for work, not for storage. Okay. So you need a steady supply of glucose and you need a steady supply of energy and you need a steady supply of mitochondrial function in order to make your brain work right. Well, anything that disrupts mitochondria is going to end up causing disease. And it turns out that there are chemicals in our environment that do that. Cyanide does that. But, you know, cyanide's a poison, we know it. But there are a lot of things that do it that aren't considered poison, but they are because they disrupt mitochondrial function. Okay, trans fats do that and they are poison. We know that now, but we didn't know it for 100 years. You know, the first trans fat was made in 1902. Crisco was patented in 1911. And by 1920, virtually every baked good in America was, you know, made with trans fats because trans fats didn't go rancid vis-a-vis -vis the 10-year-old Twinkie. All right. But it turns out the trans fats actually poisoned your mitochondria. Well, alcohol poisons your mitochondria and branched-chain amino acids poison your mitochondria. And it turns out fructose, this sweet molecule in sugar, poisons your mitochondria too. And so if you can't get the ATP out of your cell, you're going to have cell dysfunction and ultimately cell death. And when you have cell death, guess what? You have human death too. So keeping your mitochondria on its tippy toes and working as efficiently to generate the most energy possible is a prime directive of health. And we have basically thrown that in the friggin' garbage. Mm -hmm. And it turns out ultra processed food, because of its very nature, hurts your mitochondria. So then people say, well, what can you do about that? Well, it turns out there's no pill, there's no medicine that gets to the mitochondria. You know, if you look at the pathways, you know, they don't get there, they don't fix it. So people say, Okay, what about exercise? 
So exercise actually does help mitochondria. But there are certain processes that exercise can't fix. Of those eight subcellular pathologies that I mentioned before, four of them are amenable to exercise. Four of them will improve with exercise. The other four won't. In fact, one of them, oxidative stress, actually gets worse with exercise, which means you can't outrun a bad diet. And that's what we've been told for the last 50 years is eat whatever you want, just, you know, hit the, hit the, uh, hit the gym. Garbage. And the data show it. Bottom line right, is so- our food supply is poison because it causes mitochondrial dysfunction. And there's nothing that can fix it except getting rid of the poison. So you're saying that this is not druggable. This is not a druggable phenomenon. And right. and by all accounts, the primary or the predominant medical establishment seems to be hell-bent on treating these symptoms with drugs. Is that correct? Exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. Why is that? Well, because that's what they learned in medical school. Hmm. The problem is they don't learn anything about obesity in medical school. They don't learn anything about metabolic disease in medical school. They don't learn anything about nutrition in medical school. Only 28% of medical schools even have a nutrition curriculum. And those that do, the total number of contact hours, the median is 19.6. Considering there are about 6,000 contact hours in a medical education, okay, 19.6 contact hours to solve 75% of disease that's pretty stupid. Yeah. And that's where we are. And that's what I'm trying to fix. Yeah. And, you know, it feels as though big food is intent on assuaging its own culpability by thrusting the responsibility of disease onto the individual. So like you say, it propagates a number of different myths, like... Right hey, just exercise and watch your diet and, you know, you'll be okay, but it's on you, right? Um, Well, isn't everything that goes wrong always on us? Yeah. Yeah. Right? You know, and, you know, so this concept of personal responsibility. All right, let's talk about that for a minute. All right. So personal responsibility sounds very American. You know, like, you know, take the risks, suffer the consequences, you know, you know, you you know, if you did it, it's your fault. You know, that's, that's kind of very, very American. So I have a question for you. Is that in the constitution? Is that in the declaration of independence? Is that in the Magna Carta? Is that in any, any, uh, you know, um, uh, political uh, uh, document that says, uh, you know, Basically, if something happens to you, it's your fault. Is that anywhere? That is nowhere. I think we have equated this notion of pursuit of happiness and all of these things with individuality. And and that is a great misunderstanding and delusion that we seem to be intent on propagating. Indeed. We are intent on propagating it. Now, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as personal responsibility. What I am saying is that in order to invoke personal responsibility, you have to meet four criteria. And here are the four criteria. You have to have knowledge, because if you don't know what's going on, how can you exercise personal responsibility? You have to have access. So like, for instance, the people who lived on the top of Love Canal, you know, every member of their family, you know, and every friend of theirs got cancer. You know, like, what are they supposed to do about that? Was that their fault? And it's not like they could move because, you know, nobody would buy their house. So is that their fault? Okay. Number three, affordability. You have to be able to afford your choice and society has to be able to afford your choice. And right now we can't afford everybody's choice because we have, you know, uh, uh, healthcare going to hell in a handbasket. And number four, most importantly, your choice can't hurt others. That's called right. externalities. So when you smoke, it's bad for me. 
When you drink, it's bad for me because then you get behind the wheel and cause my car accident. Okay. So in order to invoke personal responsibility, you have to meet knowledge, access, affordability, and externalities. And food doesn't meet any of them, mm-hmm. not one of them. So if that's the case, it's not personal responsibility. It's a societal problem, not a personal one. That means that we have to evaluate where can society make a difference? And the answer is, well, fix the food, fix the food system, fix the food supply. And that's what we're trying to do. It's, it's a slow, you know, complicated slog. And there are a lot of stakeholders on the other side trying to keep it, you know, the way it is, because there's a lot of money to be made. But ultimately, that's the only rational way out of this. Yeah, I mean, the paradigm really needs to change because where it is focused now in terms of treatment is around, as, as you articulate in, in Metabolical, around targeted, personalized treatment. Right. And that's where the primacy is over broader societal prevention. And this, as you say, this preserves this concept of personal liberty that we seem so anchored in at the expense of collective health. So it's like you look at like all these incredible innovations around uh, immunotherapy for cancer or CAR T treatment, as you point out in the book, or bypass surgeries or transplants, these huge ticket items that are covered by insurance, but primary care where which is the the basin or the province of prevention is hardly reimbursed at all so basically primary care physicians uh are forced into this uh you know this um pattern of just writing scripts all the time that's it because prescriptions this- and procedures that's what you learn in medical school and i know because yeah. i i did it I did it for yeah. a long time, but I, you know, questioned it. I didn't understand it, but you know, it's what everyone did. It was state of the art. It's what the guidances, you know, in the, from the different societies said you had to do. And if you didn't do it, you know, then you're a bad doctor. Yeah. Well, it's also the business model as a primary care physician this is you are pushed into that situation because, you know, you're making pennies on the dollar versus, you know, a high profile, you know, um, surgeon or something. So it's just, uh, it's a, it's a paradigm that has to change on, on so many different well, levels. Well, let's take, let's take, uh, you know, we've picked on the doctors long enough here. Let's, yeah, let's yeah. pick on the dentists for a minute. Cause this has happened to them. All right. Okay. So we knew back in 1934, 1934, that sugar was the primary driver of dental caries. So the dentists, you know, being, you know, shall we say proactive, did their best to try to reduce the amount of sugar in the American diet back in the 1930s, because that was the primary cause of dental caries. And they knew it. Well, then in 1945, along came fluoride. And fluoride became the panacea. And Basically, the dental industry said, wait a second, if fluoride's going to stop dental caries, who's going to fill the seats? Yeah. And they started giving out lollipops. <laughs> Jesus. And the fact of the matter is that fluoride was never a primary uh, therapy for dental caries. It was an adjunctive therapy. It helped strengthen the enamel, the calcium hydroxyapatite in the enamel. It reduced the amount of time that the pH was low enough to burn a hole in the tooth. All those things are true. Mm. And fluoride does help. I'm not saying it doesn't. But in the best of hands, fluoride only reduced the uh, prevalence and severity of caries caries by 50%. Okay. Mm. Now, the dentists know that sugar is the primary cause of dental disease. Yet the American Dental Association and the American 
dent, uh, 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 Academy of Pediatric Dentistry, in their guidances, say nothing about diet. There's not one word about diet. Hmm. Not one word about what causes dental caries and what to do about the diet. On the other hand, you go to the Federation of Dentistry International, which is all the other dental associations around the world, not America. And they will tell you that diet is a number one and prevention and re sugar reduction is uh, intervention number one. And the reason is because they can't drill and fill because there's not enough money and not enough seats to be able to do it. So yeah. this is a you know very specific put up job by the dental societies to keep the status quo because drill yeah. and fill makes money and prevention doesn't. Similarly, we knew that nutritional fiber was absolutely essential to diet in the 30s and 40s as well. Mm -hmm. But that yes. got undone by the the meat and dairy industries. And you know, maybe you could actually pull that thread and talk a little bit about fiber and its relationship to your two central precepts of, right. of good health. <clears throat> so people think fiber is what goes get th gets thrown in the garbage when you juice the fruit. Okay? Yeah. Nothing could be further from the truth. Turns out fiber is food. Now, it's found in food, but if you throw it in the garbage, then I guess it's not food, right? Wrong. Fiber is food. It's just not food for you. It's food for your bacteria. It's food for your microbiome. We now know that each of us is composed of 10 trillion cells, but there are 100 trillion bacteria in your intestine. They actually outnumber you 10 to 1. Each of us is just a big bag of bacteria with legs. Now, those bacteria have to eat something. Well, what do they eat? Well, they eat fiber. And usually the fiber is in your food. So basically the bacteria eat what you eat. The question is how much did you get versus how much did they get? And if you threw the fiber in the garbage, then you're not feeding your bacteria. Well, it turns out if you don't feed your bacteria, then your bacteria will feed on you. They will actually strip the mucin layer off the surface of the intestinal epithelial cells, denuding them and exposing them to bacterial apposition, leading to things like uh, irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, what we call leaky gut, where things that are supposed to stay in the intestine actually traverse into the bloodstream because the intestinal barrier has been compromised. And when those things get into the bloodstream, you now have a state of systemic inflammation, hepatic inflammation, liver inflammation, which causes insulin resistance and causes all of the downstream chronic metabolic diseases we've been talking about. So the bottom line is fiber is food for your bacteria and you have to feed your bacteria in order to be metabolically healthy. And it's one of the reasons why 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy is because our current fiber consumption is less than one quarter of what it should be. It should be a 50 grams a day. Our median consumption is 12 grams a day. And that is one of the definitions of processed food. Is that right? Essentially right. high sugar, low fiber. Right. High sugar for palatability, because anything tastes good with enough sugar, and low fiber for shelf life, because you mm -hmm. can't freeze fiber. So I'll prove it to you. Here's the thought experiment. Take an orange, put it in your freezer overnight, <laughs> take it out yeah. the next morning, put it on the counter, let it thaw, try to eat it, see what you get. You get mush. Why do you get mush? because the ice crystals macerated the cell wall of the plant and all the water rushes in. Hey, food industry knows that. So what do they do? They squeeze it and freeze it. Lasts forever. 
Now, instead of an orange, now you've got frozen concentrated orange juice, which you can sell on the commodities exchange. You've turned a food into a commodity. Did you ever see the movie um, Trading Places yes. with, uh, uh, you know, uh, Eddie, Eddie Murphy, Murphy and Dan Aykroyd? Okay. Sure, sure. Love that movie. It was a great movie. Okay. But at the end of the movie, okay, they're on the floor of the commodities exchange in Philadelphia. Okay. Right. Trading frozen concentrated orange juice. Okay. And, th and that, and that's actually revolves around, you know, the, the whole story about, you know, what happens and, you know, bottom line is that's what commodities are storable food. And, you know, that's fine if you're trying to make money, but it's not fine if you're trying to make your gut happy. Yeah. So the removal of fiber is a technique for industry, but the knock-on impacts physiologically are many and extremely detrimental. So you covered what happens when fiber is removed and our bacteria essentially have nothing to eat or they end up eating sugar or, or exactly. you know, with meat, there's putrefaction or something, but essentially we need fiber to, as a prebiotic to That's feed right. our microbiome such that they then create these short chain fatty acids and metabolites and postbiotics that upregulate a whole variety of systems in the body. But when we don't do that, as you explained, uh, bacteria will essentially erode the tight junctures in our epithelial wall, and that will lead to chronic inflammation. But exactly. the other piece of fiber, and you talk about this when you untangle the myth of a calorie of all calories aren't created equal, is right. that fiber also plays a role in a uh, what calories we get versus what calories our bacteria get, and also in terms of the absorption of certain nutrients like carbohydrates from the small intestine into the bloodstream and exactly. its downstream impact. So maybe you can just pull a little bit on that. The bottom line is that fiber is the protection that we need from our food and from our bacteria, all right? Mm -hmm. So how does it work? So first of all, you have to understand there's not one fiber, there's two. There's soluble fiber, which is like pectins or inulin, like what holds jelly together. Mm -hmm. And then there's insoluble fiber, like cellulose, like the stringy stuff in celery. You yep. need both. One will not do. Now, there are six things that both will do for you. And here are the six. Number one, the insoluble fiber will form a lattice work like a fishnet. The soluble fiber or globular, they'll plug the holes in the fishnet. Together, they will form an impenetrable secondary barrier on the inside of your intestine, thus reducing the rate of absorption of glucose, fructose, sucrose, simple starches in, from the gut into the bloodstream. This will therefore reduce the burden of the liver on having to metabolize it. It will reduce the glycemic excursion, keeping the blood glucose down, because we know that that's important from continuous glucose monitoring studies and companies like Levels Health. And, you know, full disclosure, I'm an advisor to them. And it will reduce the insulin response, right? And that's important because insulin is the driver of chronic metabolic disease. So reducing the rate of absorption in the uh, duodenum is extraordinarily important. And the two together will do that. So that's the first thing that fiber does. Second thing fiber does is, well, if you didn't absorb it early, that means it goes further down the intestine, which means that the bacteria have chance at it, which means that you might not even have gotten it your bacteria did. So even though it passed your lips, it didn't actually count because your bacteria chewed it up instead of you. All right. So that's a good thing. Okay. Third thing, it 
uh, uh, moves the food through the intestine faster. So you generate the satiety signal called peptide YY sooner. All right, so you might not eat that second portion. Number four, it will generate short chain fatty acids in the um, colon. And those are anti-inflammatory, anti-Alzheimer's. Uh, you know, they're, they're uh, uh, absolutely essential. Okay, number five, it will feed the microbiome and increase microbial diversity so that the bad bacteria are basically held at bay. And number six, the fiber will act as little scrubbies on the inside of your small uh, of your colon to get rid of cancer cells. So fiber consumption is reversely associated with incidence of colon cancer. So fiber does six things when you have both, when you have both soluble and insoluble, and that's what's in whole, real food. That's what's in whole fruit, if you will, okay? People say all the time, oh, you mean I can't eat fruit? No, no, you can eat fruit, but you're eating the fruit for the fiber. If you're throwing the fiber in the garbage, then that's not fruit. That's just sugar. <laughs> that's the mm -hmm. difference. Um, now, if you ate just soluble fiber, like for instance, if you took metamucil, psyllium, okay? Mm -hmm. Of the six things I just mentioned, that would give you two. Now, that's right. better than zero, but it's not six. What if you ate cardboard? Cardboard cellulose, okay? That would give you two, okay. a different two, okay? But it wouldn't give you six. It would give you, you know, it's more than zero, but it's less than six. Well, you need all six, okay? And you especially need that inhibition of absorption. And you won't get that from either one alone. The only, And the problem is that the food industry hasn't figured out how to add insoluble fiber back to food. Yeah, they'll give they'll do fiber one bars, you know, adding inulin or pectins, you know, or psyllium to, um, you know, processed foods, you know, like, uh, you know, fiber one cereal or whatever, you know, they'll do that. But they haven't figured out how to add cellulose back because cellulose is not miscible. And if they tried to do that, the food would, you know, be grainy and have weird texture and, you know, wouldn't taste right. And, you know, it would it would just be a disaster. So that's not, uh, you know, on the on the table right now. I will again, full disclosure. I am working with a company. I'm chief medical officer of a company that is developing a specialty proprietary fiber that will do both, hmm. and that will be microscopic, and will can, and can be added to food. So fiber satisfies your two primary precepts for optimal health, which is essentially protect the liver yep. and feed the gut. Exactly right. Which I think are is an incredibly simple and concise way to think about what you should put into your body. Um, Anything, any, any substrate that does both is healthy. Any substrate that does neither is poison. Any substrate that does one or the other, but not both, is somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to insulin for a moment and its relationship with cellular respiration or energy production and the mitochondria. Because I think that one of the elephants in the room is around insulin resistance yes. and how that is generated. So maybe you could define the primary and secondary roles of insulin and, uh, and how we should think about consuming food in relationship to what insulin does. All right. This is a very complicated story, and um, I'm going to do my best to simplify it for your audience. Okay. And I don't have, you know, I only have like 10 minutes to do it, so we'll do All our right. best. It Okay. All right, we'll do our best. All right. Insulin is the diabetes hormone, right? Diabetics take insulin. Okay. They do it to lower their blood glucose. True. Okay. Where did the blood glucose go? So you have a diabetic. His blood sugar is 300. You give him a shot of insulin, blood sugar goes from 300 to 100. 
where the 200 points of blood sugar go? Answer, to the fat for storage. So insulin is really not the diabetes hormone. Insulin is the energy storage hormone. Whatever you're not burning, you have to store, and insulin's the way you store it. If there's no insulin, then basically your fat cells give up everything in them, and that's what causes this phenomenon called diabetic ketoacidosis, which is you know a complication of type one diabetes, something I took care of for many, many decades. All right. So insulin is the energy storage hormone. That's the way you need to think about it. Now, in order to do its job, insulin has two pathways in the cell. One we will call the metabolic pathway, and the other one we will call the cell growth pathway. Now, the metabolic pathway is mediated through a specific chemical in the, in the uh, cell called AKT, a specific transcription factor called AKT, and it will lower blood glucose and it will tell the liver, don't put out extra glucose into the bloodstream. And it will, you know, basically do the storage portion. And so the metabolic side of insulin, for lack of a better word, is good. That's what you need insulin for. But insulin also has a second pathway. It's the cell growth pathway, and it's mediated through a different transcription factor called MAP kinase ERK. And those, that, that pathway causes cell proliferation. It's the reason why your coronary arteries proliferate and then get narrow because of cell proliferation. It's the reason why your breast tissue or your prostate tissue expands and increases in number and then turns cancerous because of the you know in uh, unregulated cell division in other words insulin drives inappropriate cell proliferation and growth and in doing so it causes problems in your arteries problems in your glands problems in your brain problems in your heart problems all over your body, which ultimately lead to chronic metabolic disease. So high levels of insulin are bad for you. So while insulin is necessary, too much insulin is a disaster. So you don't want zero and you don't want a lot. You want the sweet spot in the middle. The problem is we ain't there. <laughs> We're not anywhere yeah. near that sweet spot. We have insulin levels that are so much higher than what they should be. A good fasting insulin level would be anywhere from two to seven. Okay. Our fast, you know, uh, fasting insulin uh, you know, median is about 12. And if you're above 15, you're going to die. You're going to die from insulin resistance. You're going to die from these chronic metabolic diseases. So why is everybody's insulin level so high? Because of the fat in the liver. And what made the fat, and because then the pancreas has to make more insulin to make the liver do its job. So that's the reason why the insulin levels are high. That's why we have insulin resistance is the fat in the liver. Well, what caused the fat in the liver? Sugar. Yeah. That's how we got the fat in the liver. And so it all comes back to this, you know, sugar glut that the food industry perpetrated upon us because they learned that sugar was addictive. When they added it, we bought more. Yeah. So essentially when insulin cannot usher glucose um, into the cell for energy production in the mitochondria, it can do a couple of things with it, um, one of which is to essentially contribute to fat in the liver, yep. which then uh, downstream creates insulin resistance, which then tells the pancreas to make more insulin to deal with all of the influx of sugar that we're eating. And, um, and it's funny because, you know, I wear a, a continuous glucose monitor. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's been, um, you know, very eye opening in terms of just, you know, what spikes me and what doesn't, and, and that's been helpful. 
But I think as a diagnostic test, as you point out, fasting insulin levels would be a much better uh, indicator of metabolic health than the that's downstream of, uh, of uh, glucose, right? That's right. Glucose is the last thing to change. So while I'm for it because it's here, mm-hmm. it's going to end up being a, you know, a, 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 an adjunct, a, a minor player. But it's here now, so and we can use it. So I'm for it, but there are other metabolic indicators that can be also gleaned uh, from a continuous monitor, from a wearable, such as lactate, such as ketones, such as alcohol. And the most important one is insulin, to actually measure insulin. Now, insulin is a protein, a peptide. It's in much lower concentration. Right, so it's going to require a little bit extra work, but people are working on it, and yeah. so I'm hoping. I think you know, within five years, we will have a continuous insulin monitor, and that will be a huge uh, advantage. Huge. So I want to respect um, the limits of your your time, um, but I I want to just ask you in closing how do we get from here to there? I mean, obviously you and many others are educating people around sugar, around the food industry, but really what we are going to need is a tectonic cultural change is what you call it kind of towards the end of your book. Yeah. And you, and you point to other cultural changes and public health measures that have been adopted on a mass level. Maybe you could address those quickly and how you think of food playing into a a similar tectonic shift. So in the last 30 years, America has experienced four, count them, four cultural tectonic shifts. And here they are. Number one, bicycle helmets and seatbelts. Two, smoking in public places. Three, drunk driving. Four, condoms in bathrooms. Now, 30 years ago, if any legislator stood up in a state house or Congress or parliament or anywhere else in the world and proposed legislation for any one of those four, they had gotten laughed right out of town. Nanny state, liberty interest, get out of my kitchen, get out of my bathroom, get out of my car. Right? Today, they're all facts of life. Nobody's belly aching about any of those. Oh, they're belly aching about other stuff like vac- vaccine mandates. I mean, we got new stuff, but no one's belly aching about those four. Right? Those are settled. And if you pull out of your driveway and you haven't clicked your seatbelt, your kids will scream at you. That's right. Now, how'd that happen? What happened? Answer We taught the children. The children grew up and they voted and the naysayers are dead. That's why this is a cultural tectonic shift. And it's also why it's a generational shift. That's why it takes 30 years is because it's new people. Mm -hmm. People don't actually change their belief system. They don't listen to me on your show and change their belief system. I wish they did, but they don't. And all you have to do is see what's going on with the January 6th committee to see how people do not change their belief system, even when presented with information. All right. The belief system is the belief system. But what you can do is you can teach the next generation. And ultimately, that's how you effectuate change. Well, we're about nine years uh, into a 30-year cycle on food. Okay. We started this about nine years ago when we realized that sugar was a toxin and started getting that word out. And kids now know this and they're actually demanding better. And we're supplying it. We're actually getting food, you know, real food into schools in part because the kids want it. My nonprofit called Eat Real, working with 315 school districts in three states right now, we want to be national, okay, to get real food into schools. And parents want it too. Well, why do they want it? The answer is because now they know, because they've learned. So the bottom line is 
Yes, you can effectuate major changes, but you have to do the education, you have to plow the ground, you have to plant the seeds, and you have to water it. You know, that's a consistent, constant process. And ultimately, yes, it will take root, it will take hold, and it will flourish. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I, I really just have to point out is that you've done a great job um, kind of demystifying the coastal components or the notion that somehow real food is a feat or only for the affluent or only affordable at right. Erewhon or, or Whole Foods. Well, and, uh, yeah. It, 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 well, unfortunately, real food does cost more. Yeah. But yeah. the question is why? And the answer is very simple. Right. One word. Subsidies. 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 Yeah. Okay. If, if if there were no subsidies, real food wouldn't cost more. Right? When you when you have a subsidy, basically you're subsidizing whatever it is you're subsidizing, but that means you're taxing everything else in order to make book. So right. it distorts the market. So the subsidies for corn, wheat, soy, sugar are killing us. And they distort the market to make it impossible to buy real food. So my goal is to get rid of all food subsidies. Mm -hmm. The question is, would the price of food change? And the answer is actually, no, it wouldn't. The only two items that would go up, corn and sugar. And those are the things we want to go up. Right. And as you say, we can pay the farmer or pay we'll the pharma <laughs> yeah. the doctor. Right. Or the doctor or the, yeah. right. So, so. The bottom line is, this is not rocket science. This is simple economics. Okay, the difference is that the standard thought process is that you've got food in this one silo and you've got medicine in this other silo and the two have nothing to do with each other. Wrong. Now, if you buy accident, put the food and the medicine in the same silo, you would see that basically it's all draining away. The amount of money that we spend on cleaning up the food industry's mess is so enormous, it's unsustainable. When people yeah. recognize that the food and the medicine actually are the same thing rather than different things, they'll come around. And that's yeah. my job. Well, big food maintains its profitability because it externalizes all of its costs. It's exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And I think you and I both dream of the day where someone could go to their primary care physician and that doctor could prescribe real food and the insurance company would cover it. That it's would happening. be the day. It's already happening. It's already happening. Exactly. Um, I, I'm a chief medical officer of a procurement startup called Fugal, F-O-O-G-A-L. Hmm. And this is exactly what we do. We uh, link together four stakeholders, the patient, the doctor, the grocery store, and the insurance company. Amazing. And you got to pull that thread out a little bit because at the end of the day, that's going to be worth it, not just for the patient, obviously, but also for the retailer who, as you point out, does not have a very big margin. Their that's margins right. are squeezed on processed foods. Exactly. And long term, yeah, the insurance companies might not be able to raise your rates for pre-existing conditions, but they're also not going to have to cover your heart bypass surgery. <laughs> Exactly. So, right. They will save so much. They will make money. Yeah. Everyone wins except so for this <laughs> Yeah, right. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with a, you know, a, a $500 billion uh, pharma industry instead of a $2 trillion pharma industry, right? Exactly. So, well, they think well, so. Yeah, they think so. <laughs> well, so we have I, a lot uh, of we have a lot of work to do, but thank, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and you know, leading from the front here as you have uh, for quite a long time. And uh, hey, I'm it, the science, the science is there and the science has to drive the policy. The problem is the politics get in the way. Yeah. 
All right. Well, you have me uh, in your corner uh, wherever I can be helpful. So thank you, Dr. Robert Lustig. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Robert Lustig. Keep abreast of Dr. Lustig's work at robertlustig.com and be sure to pick up a copy of his book, Metabolical. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort is put into the creation of this show, and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where I prattle on for the first 15 minutes on ads. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for free for 14 days at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with questions constructive criticism or notes at jeffk at onecommune.com. And I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week after week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.